The following is my conversation with Inre Viscontas, a highly accomplished Lithuanian-Canadian neuroscientist and operatic soprano. With a background in both science and music, she is known for her unique perspective on the relationship between the brain and the arts. As a neuroscientist, Viscontes has dedicated her career to understanding the working of the brain and how it processes information. In parallel, she has pursued her passion for music, honing her skills as an operatic soprano and performing on stages around the world. Her diverse background and interdisciplinary approach has made her a sought-after speaker and educator. And she is highly regarded for her ability to communicate complex scientific concepts to both specialists and general audiences. With a passion for both science and the arts, Indre Viscontas continues to make valuable contributions to our understanding of the human brain and inspires new generations of scientists and artists. So, hi, Indri. Hi, how are you? I am good. I just wanted to ask you, let's start from the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and interest uh, and like how did this overlap between neuroscience and arts begin? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I, when I was growing up as a kid, I really had two interests. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I, when I was 11, I was in my first professional opera production and I just thought it was the most fun thing ever. So I was a theater kid growing up. And then I also discovered the writings of the late neurologist Oliver Sacks, who had this incredibly poetic way of describing a case study, for example, and pulling out all the humanity and essentially showing how uh, through neuroscience we can learn much more about what it means to be human. So I sort of had these two kind of you know, passions and for a long time I kept them very separate. I ended up doing um, an undergraduate degree in psychology and was very sort of science focused following the sort of uh, medical model, thinking about the brain. But I still, there's still a side of me that was a performer and that wanted to sing. And I continued to train my voice um, all through even my PhD in neuroscience. And then after I finished my PhD, I felt like I really wanted to give my musical training the same kind of attention as I had given my scientific training. So I, uh, I sort of dropped everything and did a master's in music. And it was there that I started to see how actually the PhD training that I had just gone through, which was really centered on learning and memory in the brain, could really be applied to developing more effective practice strategies for musicians. And so when I started talking to some musician friends, they were really interested in this. Um, so that's essentially how I started to find ways of infusing my musical world with neuroscience uh, and now it kind of goes both ways. So there are definitely um, ways in which I infuse neuroscience into my musical uh, projects and endeavors, whether it's giving a recital or directing an opera or, you know, somehow um, giving a talk that is part performance, part uh, lecture. So that's sort of that's sort of how it all began. And, you know, I think for a long time, I thought that I really had to keep these two worlds separate because the people within them seem very different from each other. And uh, now we're in a kind of like, just 
really, I, I think of it as a, almost a renaissance of understanding that actually art and science are two sides of the same coin. We're all interested in understanding what it means to be human. We just use different tools and they can certainly inform one another. In terms of your relationship between music and brain, what is the most uh, common and interesting finding that you've found in your research with them? Like what's the connection? Yeah, so so I will say that, you know, I don't do a lot of neuroscience of music research. So in my lab, we study creativity a little bit more generally and more along the lines of um, sort of idea generation and uh, the anxiety that sometimes happens when you're asked to be creative on the spot. Uh, those are the kinds of research projects that are a little bit more tractable given the resources that I have at my university. But I do collaborate with other labs and, and other individuals uh, that are taking a more kind of um, sort of more neuroscience-based approach to trying to understand how music affects us. So one of the uh, things that I'm really curious about is how is it that you and I can listen to the same piece of music? Essentially, from a perceptual point of view, we have the same input, it's the same set of sound waves, and it can have vastly different effects on us. Uh, it might be something that I just you know, it doesn't, doesn't affect me at all or even affects me negatively. You know, people sometimes say, oh, I hate that kind of music. Not just like, oh, you know, I find it boring. It's like, usually you don't hate, you know, the color green. You just might just not be your favorite. But some people hate um, certain types of music. It really seems to grate on them. Whereas for another person, it can be the most sublime experience. Um, so that's something that I'm interested in. And I think that, um, you know, I think of I think of music really as a, as a Swiss army knife, as it has different tools for different purposes. And that's really where I'm interested in um, using neuroscience to help understand the power of those tools, when they're effective, what are the conditions under which effective and how we can use music strategically to improve our health and well-being. So why is music different for one person and the experience of listening to music over someone else? Yeah, What's so there are, yeah, so there are a couple of different um, mechanisms or a couple of different ways in which music can end up having uh, its effect. So one is, first off, I think we actually hear sounds differently. So there's been, you know, usually we, we kind of go, go around the world and we think everybody else experiences the world the same way that we do. And I had a kind of wake up moment when I was a grad student when um, V.S. Ramachandran, who's this just great neuroscientist who studies synesthesia, which is where you have like a sensory crossing. Um, so maybe you like hear shapes or taste sounds. Um, and he was talking about a type of synesthesia called grapheme color synesthesia, where people see letters and numbers in color. And I just turned to my friend who was sitting next to me and I said, oh, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, of course, everybody sees letters and numbers in color. Like, how else would you be able to tell what letter you're looking at if you don't know what color it is? <laughs> and she looked at me like I was from the moon. So that's when I learned, oh, my goodness, not everyone sees the world in the same way that I do. Um, even though to me, it just I just took it for granted. And that's true for all of our senses and a lot of the ways in which we kind of experience our inner mental world. So another you know, in the last five years, there's been this explosion of research into something called um, aphantasia, which is the inability to imagine something in your mind's eye. So if I said to you, imagine a sphere, um, 
you know, with your eyes closed? What what would it look like to you? Would it be kind of hazy and abstract? Would it be very specific? Would it have a color? Would it have light bouncing off of it? Like, what would it look like? And there are some people who simply can't do that. They don't they don't, they don't know what you mean when you say imagine the sphere. So there's the spectrum of uh, experiences that we have. And I think the same is true in terms of our hearing. And I think that is a function of a number of things. One, I think there's probably a genetic component to it. But also I think that it's a product of how your brain developed when you were a kid. If you were raised in a really noisy environment and you actually had to tune out sound in order to just function, then you probably have a different way in which you now kind of hear sounds. You probably actually miss a lot of sounds that are out there um, because your brain is just used to tuning them out. On the other hand, if you live in a very, if you grew up in a very quiet household and say, you know, your mom was a, was a pianist and, uh, you know, the favorite part of your day would be, you know, lying under the piano, listening, her, listening to her play Chopin etudes, maybe you have a very sensitive ear and so music that sounds like heavy metal, for example, could be too jarring, it's too much, you know, for, for you to kind of process because your ear is very attuned to the subtleties of Chopin. So those early childhood experiences, I think, have an, have an influence on just your basic perception of sound. And then when you reach your teenage years, where there's this genetically, uh, you know, there's, there's I, I think of it as a kind of like a, uh, a genetic switch that gets uh, turned on where you want to leave your family unit. You want to go out on your own. You want to rebel. You want to you want to find your own people. Um, and, you know, that's where we get some of the rebellious teenage years. That's a time when music can play a really big role in terms of helping you define your own identity and finding others that share that sense of identity that, you know, your group. And so oftentimes the music that you listened to that you loved in those years between say 15 and 16 and until you're about 25, um, are, you know, you, you will love that music for the rest of your life. And that's why, you know, people who later in life have a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's, you play music from that period in their lives and all of a sudden they can, it seems like they can come alive again, even if they've lost, you know, their ability to use language to speak, et cetera. So, so that's, that's another period of time in which I think some of these preferences for music get laid down. But ultimately, I think that the reason that you might, you know, respond to one piece of music and I might not respond to another depends also on the situation. So for example, um, what is your current mood? Are you in the mood for that kind of music? Are you in the mood for the type of emotion that that music is gonna evoke? And how well do you understand what to listen for? So different genres have different rules and different kind of almost sort of like unwritten patterns that with exposure, we learn to decipher and we learn to assign meaning to. So, you know, one example I like to give is jazz. So in jazz, one of the cool things is that when you have a person who's, you know, doing playing an instrumental jazz piece and it's a very famous tune like My Funny Valentine, if you're a jazz aficionado, you know what the tune is and you can kind of follow along and you can catch the sort of twists and turns that the great player is doing. And, and that's cool. And that feels like, oh, it's interesting and, you know, it can evoke emotions. But if you've never heard My Funny Valentine, it can just sound like a whole bunch of disjointed noise. <laughs> and you don't know what to track, you don't know what to listen for. So it just doesn't seem that interesting to you. 
Um, so I think that's one of the reasons, those are the reasons why music can have such different effects on us. It depends on our you know, auditory uh, perceptual development. It depends on our exposure in these periods of life when music was really influential. And it depends on our current state of mind, um, how open we are to you know, exploring some kind of new music if we've never heard it before, or how well we know the genre in which the music piece is, is uh, from. Is it a, a possibility that one can reset their hearing perceptions? Like you said, you know, if you were a kid and you had tuned out certain sounds so that you could just like, you know, be normal. Or if you were from a quiet household, the way you, uh, you know, your the exposure and the way you uh, adapted to it was different. So as you grow up, is it possible that people can change it? Yeah, and in fact, there's some really great research uh, now coming out of Nina Krause's lab at Northwestern University and el elsewhere that shows that actually, if you take a child who has, um, you know, who, who actually has uh, a problem discerning speech from noise, who, you know, tunes out uh, some speech and, and, you know, they can even have some language delays or, you know, reading and writing problems as they're, as they're in, in elementary school, if you actually train them on a musical instrument, you can overcome some of those initial deficits um, because you can tune their brain. You can tune their brain to now respond to sound in this more specific way. So there are things that you can do to undo it. And that's one of, I think, one of the arguments for why music uh, should be a part of every child's education because it can have you know, some of these restorative effects can overcome some of the limitations that some children uh, experience on the basis of, of how they grew up. Um, it teaches so many wonderful things, but, th but that I think is, is one, one of the reasons. And of course, you know, the more you expose yourself to a particular genre of music, the more you try to learn a musical instrument, the more effort you put in, the more time and dedication you put into it, the, the more you're gonna change how your brain responds to sound. Um, mm. So we often say the musician's brain is a model of neuroplasticity because we can actually track all the different ways in which this intensive training can leave its mark on the brain. Um, so it's absolutely possible. It might take a significant amount of effort. And I think that, you know, for some people who start to think, oh, you know, I'm just not musical and it's just not for me. And, you know, I'm just not talented. You know, often it comes down to you just weren't exposed to the right teacher uh, because there's such a huge variety of ways in which we can train someone um, to, to enjoy, listen to and play music. And the wrong teacher, um, you know, can is not going to be effective, but um, the right teacher, you know, can certainly make progress. So let's go back a bit to your mention of Alzheimer's. Is there a possibility mm -hmm. or is there some research in the way of like, because they do respond to music even if they're in a condition where they've forgotten a lot of things. So is memory somehow related to music one? And is there a way of reverse engineering memory uh, through the use of music? Absolutely. So yes to both of those. So um, memory is just is not one single unitary thing. There are many different types of memory. And if you think of memory as essentially how experience shapes your future behavior, um, you know, there's 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 lots of ways in which, you know, uh, your past experiences can influence what you do next. But the kind of memory that is uh, affected mainly in patients with Alzheimer's disease is um, this this ability to kind of keep track of what's been said, um, this ability to like lay down new long-term memories, you know, the the sort of classic 
uh, presentation would be someone who repeats themselves in the middle of a conversation or, you know, forgets what day it is or, um, you know, forgets that they've just spoken to you a few hours ago. Um, so it's this kind of, so, and, and that kind of memory uh, is affected by the parts of the brain that degenerate first in many patients with Alzheimer's disease. Now, I should say there are several subtypes of Alzheimer's disease where the degeneration can happen elsewhere first. But in the sort of typical case, those are the kinds of symptoms that seem to bring the patient to the neurologist's office and that, you know, their loved ones complain about. As the disease progresses, more and more of these memory networks get affected. And so, you know, you can get to a point where the person really can't hold a conversation at all, um, you know, is almost unable to speak. It turns out that even that late in the disease, the parts of the brain that uh, seem to be responsible for musical memories remain relatively unaffected. So um, we, see, we can see that the musical memories seem to last longer because the brain regions involved there really are much less likely to be affected by the disease. And what's interesting though, is that the brain is not just a series of these islands of brain regions. Um, we actually have networks of brain regions working together that give us all of the abilities that we are able to have, the states of mind, et cetera. And um, you can think of these, these networks like a car and a car has many parts. And in order for the car to drive, you know, the, the gas pedal has to work, the wheels have to turn, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different parts that have to go, you know, to make it happen. If you have a flat tire, the car is going to stop. But the car is also going to stop if you run out of gas. So if you think about this kind of remembering, there are different places where that network can go offline and the memory remembering can be affected. What music does is it kind of greases the wheels of this whole network. And all of a sudden, you can have a situation in which you play music from a person's 20s um, so let's, let's say the patient is a person in later stages of Alzheimer's, they're not really verbal anymore, they can't really hold a conversation, they're just kind of, you know, sitting in a chair, and they're not really reacting to anything and try to talk to them and nothing happens. All of a sudden you play one of their favorite pieces of music from when they were in their 20s, and they light up. And what's happening here is that the memory of that music is triggering now the activation of that network. And previously, when you were trying to talk to them, those, you know, that that information was not that that way of interacting was not effective in triggering this network. You trigger this network, they suddenly connect with you. You can have an emotional experience. They feel more in control. They feel more socially connected. There's all these benefits in the moment. Um, and what we see remarkably is that even hours and sometimes days later they perform better on cognitive tests of memory as a result of these kinds of listening sessions. So it reactivates the car, it greases those wheels, gets the gas back into this network, and that effect can actually last a fairly long time even outside of the actual listening session. So to me, that's really remarkable. It speaks to the power of music. And um, you know, I do think that it's gonna be more and more uh, recognized as a way of helping people cope with Alzheimer's disease 
Um, you know, it can reduce the need for medications and sedatives and can reduce agitation. It can improve the bonds between the caregivers and the, and the patients. It can just, you know, improve their quality of life um, and improve their functioning. Is there any way to use this and adapt it in such a way that you can help learn things? Because imagine you're like learning a specific subject mm -hmm. play this song every single time so by the time like you know you listen to that song it kind of rewires those newer circuits yeah well how did you learn the alphabet oh yeah <laughs> the sequence right yeah <laughs> almost certainly with a song right mm -hmm. uh you know I, i know very few people who can recite the alphabet without somehow thinking about the song that they first used to learn it uh so yes of course music is a powerful mnemonic um You know, it does, and 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 you know, it, it does create a kind of pattern, a, a a rhythm. It lets you anchor information to a specific, uh, you know, um, piece like stimulus. So it's a very powerful way of learning new information. I mean, this is, um, you know, that's a well-known phenomenon in in school-aged education for sure. Um, in terms of you know, as an adult, how you can use music to help you learn. Well, there's a number of different ways. One, just learning to play a musical instrument develops your executive functioning skills, which are skills that are involved in sort of getting things done, making goals, staying motivated, reaching those goals, strategizing, um, et cetera. And um, when those skills are, are better developed, then you are just better able to organize the material and, you know, being be able to ultimately learn it and remember it and meet those goals. So that's kind of a tangential way in which musical training can help. Um, but then of course, too, it can lift your mood. Uh, so you can study for longer periods of time. Um, and again, it can, it can serve as this powerful mnemonic. So, you know, um, uh, sometimes when I'm writing, I listen to the same playlist uh, and it kind of gets me into the frame of mind of writing but it also helps me keep track of ideas that came during other writing sessions that maybe I didn't use in that moment uh, because it sort of, you sort of come back into that same mental context and it, and it reminds you of things that you experienced while you were there. So those are different ways in which you know, memory can help you learn things. Um, but again, I think it's a Swiss army knife and there are many different tools, many different ways. There isn't just one particular sledgehammer mm -hmm. uh, that, that is good for everything. What about PTSD? So I know like it jogs up memory sometimes, uh, you know, it can like trigger things that you didn't even know you remembered. And PTSD mm -hmm. has this habit of making you numb out or like cloud your memory of it, certain things. Is there any way to use music as a way to work with patients with PTSD? Yeah, in fact, that's one of the other big areas in which music therapy in particular um, is being uh, used and has been shown to be effective. So. PTSD can can sort of broadly be divided up into two subtypes. One is the kind in which you have unwanted memories that come back. So usually if you've experienced, um, you know, a, a, a severe traumatic uh, event, this, this often happens, people coming back from a war, for example, um, and now you have a hypervigilance syndrome where you know, a car backfires and all of a sudden you go back right to, you know, that war zone and it triggers all these unwanted feelings and memories. In those cases, uh, music can actually have a negative effect. It can be counterproductive because it can trigger again this, this set of emotions. And, and there's a number of different, um, 
you know, sort of things that happen or, or you know, that are more likely in patients with that kind of PTSD. Um, for example, when they're sleeping, uh, they tend to have higher adrenaline. It's harder for them to have restorative sleep. And instead they replay these memories and, and replay all the emotions that come with them as opposed to when a healthy person is sleeping and those memories are replayed, they're actually separated from the emotional reaction. So you, have, you don't have the adrenaline rush. So you don't want necessarily music that's going to build up on adrenaline rush when, you know, actually what you're trying to do is avoid those kinds of situations. But in those situations, you can use music to help you process through some of those emotions in the context of a therapeutic relationship with a music therapist who knows when to push and when to pull back. I think that's really important that, um, you know, people don't realize that music um, can have this negative effect. So you know, if you're going to be working with someone who has severe PTSD, you need to be careful that you are trained into understanding, seeing the signs and not letting them go into an aversive experience. The second type of PTSD where you're numb usually results after um, many uh, instances of abuse or negative experiences. So think of someone who's gone through um, and experienced repeated domestic abuse. There, instead of having a hypervigilant syndrome, uh, these individuals actually feel no emotions. They, you know, feel numb inside, as you've kind of described, because that's a coping mechanism. You know, if if they've gone through many traumatic experiences, their brain is is protecting them by not then inducing any emotional experiences. And so, one of the sad uh, outcomes of that kind of PTSD is that when something great happens, you know, when they experience the birth of a child or, you know, success at work, um, they can have no, they can feel numb, you know, they don't, they don't enjoy, um, they don't, uh, that sort of emotional highs that those kinds of experiences can give. And this is, I think, where music now is a powerful way of um, helping us feel our emotions again. So, um, I think that it can serve again in the context of a therapeutic relationship with a licensed music therapist who really knows what they're doing. Um, it can be an effective way of helping the person get back in touch with their emotions, learn that they are safe in the safe context that can be turned off. You know, you can always turn the music off um, and start to feel again. Um, so there are these different ways that, um, you know, music uh, therapy can help patients with PTSD. And there are also sort of group music interventions that also seem to be helpful for people with PTSD to help them, you know, reconnect with each other, to help them, you know, reconnect with themselves um, and heal, you know, from some of the traumatic events they've experienced. What's the connection between psychedelics and music? Because I know there's a strong connotation and there's, in fact, psychedelic music and yeah. people gravitate towards it. Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, the, the neuroscience research on psychedelics is in its infancy because for many decades it was frowned upon and or banned, <laughs> at least in the U.S. Uh, we weren't, it was, it was not, it was not, you're not allowed to, to run those kinds of studies. And yet, uh, of course, people knew that psychedelics can have therapeutic effects. And, um, you know, there's this been this grassroots movement where people have been using it uh, in therapeutic ways to induce into you know, certain experiences and, and, and have positive effects on people. I wanna say that it's really important that we study clinically which of the types of psychedelic experience are, are in fact healing um, and which might have negative outcomes and what are the situations under which that might be. And so I, I do think the science there needs to, needs to um, 
you know, be be done. I think we don't have all the answers yet. But from my reading of the of the few studies that have been done, um, my understanding is that there are um, there are psychedelics like psilocybin, which induce sort of very different states of consciousness. And often music is used as an enhancer or a guiding principle in terms of helping a person have a particular type of experience. Um, and then there are sometimes drugs that are kind of called psychedelics, but they don't maybe they're not as hallucinogenic um, like MDMA, um, which has a sort of different mechanism of, of, of effect that is also used uh, with music and these kind of guided sessions. And I think there are different mechanisms at play here. I think there's a, a difference between, you know, taking psilocybin and essentially putting yourself in a completely different mind. So as I mentioned before, we all think that everybody else's mind is just like ours. How informative is it when instead of you know just listening to someone describe their inner mental world, you can actually experience this very different inner world? And I think that does lead to people feeling like, wow, the universe is much bigger than I thought. You know, there's all this, you kind of get out of your own head and you have this experience of feeling connected to um, you know, a bigger entity, whatever that might be. So that can have its own effects. And I think music, again, let me look. One of the reasons uh, music is such a big part of uh, so many rituals, so many religious ceremonies, et cetera, is because it does make you feel closer to uh, another being, a supreme being, an entity. You know, we 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 built cathedrals to music, uh, and we and we use music in cathedrals because it does have this powerful effect of feel making us feel connected to um, people outside of us and to you know potentially other things besides you know humans. Um, and, but in the in the case of uh, MDMA, I think there's a different mechanism here where you know there's different neurotransmitters that are involved. But I think that it's a sense of you know MDMA induces a feeling of self-love and compassion. Uh, so you can sort of feel you can re-experience in the in the hands of a of a of a really good guide. You can go through some of your traumatic experiences while feeling compassion for yourself. And that can be a way of, you know, rewiring those memories. So imagine you went through a traumatic event and, you know, you're now numb to it because it's sort of like many uh, parts of, uh, you know, and you're just unable to feel. All of a sudden you take the MDMA drug in the context of a, you know, psychotherapy session and uh, you feel feelings you haven't felt in, in years or decades even. And with the right guide, they can guide you through those memories and um, help you kind of rework them in your brain and sort of maybe find closure or something like that. So music, I think in that case, is has a secondary uh, um, role. Maybe it can help you put you back into those contexts. Uh, but I do think it's more in the psilocybin, it's more in the kind of other state of mind where um, where music seems to have a, a particularly primary role to play. Is there, like, so how does imp uh, the impact of technology on the brain and how it affects the ability to process and appreciate music? How has that evolved over time? Um, well, I guess it depends on what kind of technology you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about sort of, um, you know, the rise of social media, the fact that we're always on our phones, the fact that our attention is now a commodity that is being stolen from us day in, day in and day out. Um, you know, I think that's one, one direction, one way in which technology, especially digital technology, has affected how our minds work. 
I think music can sometimes help you uh, regain focus, um, but it can also serve as yet another distraction, uh, yet another thing that sort of, you know, vies for your attention. Um, so in that way, I think that, you know, music actually can, can sort of keep us away from the kind of deep thinking, deep work, you know, the sort of, um, the type of just, you know, being bored and the benefits of being bored. Uh, I think sometimes those are, uh, I think it's underappreciated. I think, I think boredom is a state that, you know, we tend to feel very infrequently now. And I think that being bored as actually a, a powerful way in which you can learn uh, to control your own mind. Um, so, so that's one side. I would say that now the other way, the, th the ways that I'm excited about technology enhancing our, um, uh, experience with music uh, are, 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 are companies that I've been sort of working with either directly or indirectly that can track our physiological response to music or enhance our uh, experience with music, say, by turning sound into a haptic stimulus, like a touch-based stimulus. So, um, for example, one company I, I'm on the scientific advisory board for is called Roboto, and they... Um, they have a machine learning algorithm that uh, basically takes data from a wearable that measures your heart rate variability and uh, say your Spotify playlist or you know, your whatever music you're listening to. And it can extract features of the music that have a specific effect on your heart rate variability, which is a great proxy for how stressed you are. So it can figure out for an individual person what, kind, what features of music make them more stressed out or less stressed out, what amps them up, what chills them out. And I think that that's really helpful when you think about therapeutic uses of music that are not strictly music therapy based, although I think it can, it can enhance music therapy too. But, you know, imagine you are awaiting surgery and you're in the waiting room and you're getting very anxious and there's all kinds of noise and that's just making it worse. And now the anesthesiologist comes in and they have to actually give you more sedative to get you to calm down and fall asleep. Um, or lose consciousness, I guess not really sleeping. Mm -hmm. uh, now imagine that you are listening to your favorite playlist and you're already in a state of relaxation and uh, the anesthesiologist has to use less sedative. Um, I mean, that's good for everybody. Um, so, you know, understanding what playlist actually can have that effect on you from your physiology, I think is a, is a tool that, that, that can enhance it. So it's, you might think you know what music chills you out, but you know, uh, using heart rate variability as an objective measure, um, you know, can maybe make that uh, make that that playlist a, a little bit more effective. The other the other tool that um, I've been really interested in 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 checking out and playing more with is uh, is this haptic device. So David Eagleman has a company called Neosensory that made this like haptic wristband um, that you know turns sound into you know. A, a pattern of touch. Um, Subpack also has these vests that you put on. <coughs> Excuse me. That um, you know, particularly I think is designed for people who are uh, hard of hearing or who are deaf, uh, for them to actually feel the sound waves uh, in this precise stimulus. But I think that it can be used to enhance all kinds of experiences, from you know, video gaming to you know, being on the dance floor at a party. So I'm excited about technology that now can sort of make the musical experience even more immersive um, and, and more powerful. What is it about music and then bass? Like, cause people always say bass is there, so the sound sounds better, the song is better with it. Can you explain how that is connected? 
Yeah. So, you know, there are actually some frequencies uh, of bass that we actually can't hear, that we feel, you know, we feel it in our bodies. And, um, you know, I like to say that we don't see or even hear the rhythm, we feel the beat. So the beat is a big component of, of music and how it affects us. It's tied into our motor systems, our movement systems. We, you know, it makes it, that's what makes us want to move. So when you feel the beat and you feel it in the bass often, uh, then, you know, it, the mu music has that added effect to you. It makes you want to move. It, it, you know, incites you into action. And that's very exciting for us. So, yeah, I think it, it feels it sort of, it, you know, it, it, it tackles that other component of music uh, that makes us want to move, um, you know, and I, and I think that, that that can be very energizing. And is there some connection between stimuli of music and affecting other senses? Because I know like someone's dancing the way they are with somebody and then it kind of affects the way they see that person, even in the future, because it's that song mm. or the way they look at someone because that song was playing. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, we often think of our senses as acting independently. When we're in kindergarten, we're told we have five senses. Um, but the truth is, is that each sense affects the other. Uh, so when you see someone, um, you know, playing a piece of music or even speaking, uh, what you actually hear, how your brain processes that sound is affected. So one great, you know, example of this is, you know, somebody... Um, is saying one syllable like ba, um, but you actually are watching somebody say fa, <laughs> um, you will actually hear a different syllable that's sort of in between, like a va. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, so, so, so certainly what you see affects what you hear. Um, and it, but I think this other, the, to me, the interesting side of your question is how does it affect what we think of or how we feel about another person? And that's very interesting because I do think that music is something that is written into our evolutionary history. Look, well before, a million years before we um, developed the ability to use language to communicate, we were already probably sitting around campfires because fire was discovered much earlier. So what were we doing? I mean, we were probably exchanging primitive vocalizations. We were probably making a beat. Uh, maybe we use, using our bodies, maybe even musical instruments of some kind. So I think music is very much tied into how we connect with others. Um, we know that music has multiple ways to connect us, whether it's by increasing levels of the attachment hormone oxytocin, or whether it's synchronizing our brain and body rhythms. Um, you know, there are many different ways, uh, you know, putting us on the same emotional journey, which is another way in which we connect. So yeah, I think when you see someone moving to music and you're moving to music, you feel more in sync with them. Maybe even it, it, it's as simple as oxytocin levels are higher, which we know, you know it's called the love hormone for a reason. Um, and, you know, I think that that does ingrain into your mind that here you have a connection with this person. Um, and, you know, that's, that's pretty compelling. What is uh, the relationship between creativity and the brain? How do you think the arts can help us understand the brain? Yeah, so I mean, I think creativity is also multifaceted. I think you can be creative outside of the arts in terms of just problem solving at work, you know, or even uh, figuring out a new recipe uh, for, you know, your, 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 your favorite pie. Um, but we call that sort of, sort of everyday creativity. Artistic creativity uh, is its own thing. And the, I kind of distinguish artistic creativity from scientific or kind of other kinds of creativity by the fact that 
with artistic creativity, the artists themselves is an important feature of whether or not we value that product as creative. So for example, if my son was chewing a piece of gum and he was at the Museum of Modern Art and he just stuck it to the wall because he didn't couldn't find a trash can, most people would not call that art. <laughs> but there are paintings or you know pieces of art that involve gum stuck to them <laughs> because the artist had the intention and you know wanted to do this and so like you know, the 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 object itself is not uh, is not is is not of value. It it is when the artist intentionally chooses to create that we assign it value, which isn't the, the same thing with a scientific discovery. You know, if my son suddenly discovered a cure for cancer, nobody would care whether it was him or somebody else. So, um, so so in terms of uh, you know. Uh, uh, how, you know, how, what, what we can learn. I think that if we understand how, not only how artists create, um, but also how society values what they create, what are the ways in which we can enhance the different stages of the process, because it is in multiple stages. What are the brain underpinnings? Can we use uh, some of these, you know, new techniques of stimulating the brain to stimulate people's creativity. If we know the brain regions that are involved in a particular type of creative thinking, can we kind of put the person's brain state uh, in, into that using these these technologies? So I think there are ways in which we can enhance creativity uh, if we understand it better. And I think this is really important because look, we're facing really big problems in our world that are going to require creative solutions. Uh, we also understand that art is what makes us feel like life is actually worth living and it's worth solving those problems because we feel connected to others and we, you know, get this energy from, you know, a new idea or a new vision of the world. Um, but also when you think about the coming age of artificial intelligence, the coming age of so the digital revolution where a lot of jobs are going to be replaced by machines or computers, I think that, you know, creativity is something that we will continue to explore and enjoy and want to do, even if, you know, an AI can do it as well or better. I think it's still something that is going to be fun for us. And so we'll continue to pursue. And also, I think that there are going to be lots of uh, examples of ways in which AI simply can't compete with human creativity. You know, I say that with a big caveat um, that, you know, every example that we sort of come to, like now we have, you know, chat GPT that, you know, can write poetry and rap songs and, uh, you know, but it's still not, we're not at the point where humans are equally passionate about the output of an artificial intelligence as they are um, about the art output of an artist uh, who is human, <laughs> who has an intentionality about it. So, so I, I do think that that's still, um, you know, salient and important. And I think that understanding how that works can help us both foster it in children, in ourselves, and also find ways of um, enhancing it. Can you tell me about uh, any particular memorable or impactful moment from your career in your, as a neuroscientist and as an opera singer? Yeah, so, you know, one of the, the very first opera that I directed is called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is based on the case study by Oliver Sacks. Uh, it was written in the 80s by Michael Nyman. And it's this beautiful chamber opera, uh, three singers, a small orchestra. And it was the first time where I felt like I had a vision for this opera that 
uh, no one else would have. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I started to find my own directorial voice and vision um, through this work because I had worked with Oliver. He ended up being a mentor of mine and a friend. And, uh, and you know, I knew the neuroscience behind the type of Alzheimer's disease that the patient in the case uh, actually ended up having. And I felt like I knew how to bring the audience into this world uh, effectively with the music, uh, as you know, as a, as a singer myself, I felt like I, I knew what parts of the music um, really spoke to the audience and how to craft this experience. So that was the first time where I felt like, hey, you know what? Actually, my neuroscience background is really informing my artistry here, and it's 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 something that I can offer up to the world uh, that no one else can. I don't, I don't know any other neuroscientist opera singer slash directors mm-hmm. <laughs> so i felt like that was that was something i could contribute that was unique uh what is the role of music with cognitive development particularly with children and how does it affect their development of the brain yeah so i think here too we sort of hear about the mozart effect this idea that if you listen to especially classical music written in the uh you know 18th century in europe uh somehow that's going to make a child smarter and time and time again, it's been shown that simply passive listening does not do that. There's nothing special necessarily about Mozart or even Bach. Um, but, uh, but, but there are ways in which music can be used as a tool to uh, enhance certain aspects of cognitive development. So for example, um, what has been found, I think, uh, more consistently and objectively is that many years of individual music lessons can enhance executive functioning skills, can lead to more connectivity between sort of the the left and right uh, cerebral hemispheres, can sort of build some of these networks of the brain that we then use for other functions, um, bimanual coordination, uh, you know, extracting sound, uh, specific sounds from noise, et cetera. So, So I do think that it can help a child sort of uh, you know, develop some of these, also these ways of pattern thinking. So um, this is where I think some uh, composers like Bach, for example, could be more effective than composers where the patterns maybe aren't as uh, sophisticated, or I should say, or as complicated, uh, because a child who learns to hear the different patterns in a Bach fugue, for example, um, sort of ha- will have an ability to kind of pull out uh, symbolic patterns and I think in other materials as well. That's not to say that if the child doesn't like that type of music, uh, it's probably not going to be effective. And mm-hmm. so I think I think the most important thing is to really focus on the social benefits that group music making can have on children's development. So to me, um, we can talk about, you know, academic achievement we can talk about math scores we can talk about verbal vocabulary scores etc kids who who have lots of musical training but the thing that i find most compelling because of course there are lots of other you know, like somebody who's played chess for 10 15 years also has a lot of these benefits and just not necessarily specific to music although music can have sort of its own specific benefits but really kids who like to play music they like to come to school when they have band practice or orchestra practice mm-hmm because it's fun. And you know what, if the kid is at school, it's much easier to teach them math. (laughs) And if the kid comes to school for band practice, they're probably going to stay for the rest of the day. So I think this sort of social component and also like when there's a 
concert that brings the whole community in. The parents get to talk to each other. The parents feel more attached to the school. They might be more likely to convince their child to go to school on the days in which the child doesn't want to go to school. Um, I think that part of it is like getting kids to come to school has is going to have a much more powerful effect um, than the few kids who are going to become Bach experts at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, and, and I think that, and I don't think there's anything necessarily special about, um, you know, 18th century European music. I think there are a lot of different genres that, you know, can have very significant effects with very complex patterns, very complex music. And I think it's a matter of developing an expertise, ex, you know, you know, expertise in, in something. And also, frankly, learning to play a musical instrument or even to sing is hard. And when a child learns that they can put the effort into doing something that seems impossible to begin with, but they can actually see the fruits of their labor, I think that's very powerful. And I think music can have these very obvious milestones that the child can see the impact of their work. So it's harder, I think, to see your progress when you're learning to read I think it's easier to see your progress when you're learning to play an instrument because first off you can't play that phrase and then all of a sudden you can play an entire piece of music with both hands and the right rhythm and the right tempo with the right emotion and so I feel like that really is a great lesson for kids to learn um, that they put if they put in the effort uh, they can learn to do the impossible. What about shaping the way we like our music, our preferences? So would it be like, you know, just because, okay, if you're depressed, listen to this kind of music and it'll change your mood. Or like, you know, this person, like, because people say there's emo music, people who just gravitate towards sad music and it's kind of a part of their personality. It becomes the way they dress and all of that. And then people who listen to rock music. I don't want to stereotype, but like, what's the connection? So, I mean, I think there is a big connection in terms of how we uh, how how we identify with either a band. So maybe there's a particular band that whose lyrics or music you think, oh man, that person really gets me. <laughs> you know, the way that they experience this breakup is exactly how I feel, and so you feel this affinity towards the person because you feel like, you know, hey, they're just like me, or I get what they're saying. Um, I also think that there is this culture that comes around this music. So, you know, as you mentioned, there are, you know, there are different stereotypes associated with different genres of music, but some of those are tied to identity. So, you know, whether it's how a person dress, dresses or how they speak or what they're interested in or, you know, some of these other cultural components, you know, I think that it can serve as an anchor point for defining your, you know, who, who you are and, and, and who your friends are, what your values are. Um, so I think it's powerful in in that way. Um, uh, you know, I, I also think that uh, when we, you know, the, the the sort of dark side of that is that because music can have an effect on our emotions, we can feel um, uh, sort of alienation from, uh, you know, from from the type of music or, or or the identity of a group of people who like a type of music that is not in the same line as our values. So, or, you know, or this is, I mean, this is too where racism and um, homophobia and other forms of discrimination can come in. Uh, you know, people can kind of tag a group of people as a certain way on the basis of the music they listen to. And I think that that is unfortunate. Um, and I often, you know, tell people if there's a particular music, type of music that you hate, 
uh, and you know, you know, spend a little time understanding what the great artists in that genre are actually trying to do, hmm. uh, because maybe that will help you see a little bit more of yourself in them, or you know, at least appreciate you know their talent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think our musical preferences, you know, I think that it is a powerful tool, and 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 I think that you know, as you mentioned, like okay, when you're sad, people say listen to you know this kind of music. That's not always going to be effective for everyone, right? People are going to have different reactions. Some people who are sad want to listen to uplifting music. Hmm. Some people who are sad want to process that emotion so that they can get rid of it. So they want to de- lean into the depths of their despair right and really feel the anger feel the sadness and then they feel better and they can get over it so i think it depends on the person but we also have a very strong and influential music industry certainly there are hit makers out there people that you know have or know the recipe for uh, making great music and part of that is not i mean i think part of it may be based on experience or even on um you know certain algorithmic tools that, that we might have now but I also think it depends on what we're exposed to. So familiarity breeds preference when it comes to music. The more you listen to it, the more likely you are to hear the patterns, the more likely you are to anticipate where the music is going, which is part of the reason why we feel pleasure when we listen to music. So if you have an industry that preferentially plays a particular type of music and you start to hear it in the stores, in the restaurants, while you're waiting on hold at the, uh, you know, trying to book a flight, um, that's going to have an influence on how you feel about that music. And so I think that, you know, the music industry does sort of um, almost, you know, it's got its finger on the scale when it comes to our musical preferences. And so I remember reading something very uh, strange about cows listening to Mozart and then their yield of milk was as rock yeah. music. What is that connection? <laughs> Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, we don't know, but yeah, you know, I think it's like Sala della Barba that, uh, that you know, the Italian researcher uh, found that, yeah, you know, he found a farmer that said the, the cows that listen to Mozart or you know, music uh, make better cheese or milk. Um, you know, I think part of it has to do with uh, uh, calming effects and certain you know, I don't know, you know, particularly what it was about that type of music and how the cow hears it um, that affected it. But like certain animals obviously have different uh, frequencies in, in of sound waves that they can hear. And so, um, you know, like there's one study that showed that um, dogs who are kenneled, uh, when they are played heavy metal music, they actually get quite agitated. But when they are played, um, you know, soft instrumental music, they can actually calm down. And so there, there's that effect. But uh, monkeys, a particular, I can't remember the species of monkeys, but there's one particular species of monkey that showed the opposite effect. That in fact, the Metallica, the heavy metal music, made them um, sort of, you know, behave better, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> Uh, compared to other music. And I think that's going to depend on sort of, how, you know, what they're hearing and how they're interpreting it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, if you think just generally of music as having an effect on a, on on the biorhythms of an animal and tr- generally music that is sort of uh, classical music, which was, you know, when we think of like 18th century white European composers, um, it often is relatively slow in tempo compared to say, um, you know, heavy metal, uh, which will be a, have a faster tempo, be more agitated. And if you think about one of the ways in which music can affect us is by entraining our, our heart rate, for example, or other body rhythms to the beat, 
then you have a faster beat, you're gonna have a faster heart rate. You have a slower beat, you're gonna have a slower heart rate. You have, um, and also remember some of the sounds might be mimicking sounds of distress. So, you know, if the heavy metal music has more sounds that sound like uh, an animal in distress, that's gonna be distressing for an animal that listens to it. As opposed to classical music, maybe there are fewer of those, you know, sound pockets. Um, and a slower tempo, you can imagine that can entrain a slower heartbeat and calm the animal down. We spoke a little bit about Alzheimer's, but then what about Parkinson's and dementia? Is there a way of treating these neurological disorders through music? Yeah, so, you know, we spoke about how you don't see the rhythm, you feel the beat. Hmm. And it turns out that one of the problems in Parkinson's disease is related to, um, you know, fewer cells in, in the motor regions of the brain that are responsible for initiating voluntary movement. So getting up out of a chair, for example. Um, well, it, if music actually helps reset the rhythms in those brain regions, music can be a tool used strategically to get the person out of that chair. Um, and in fact, some of the uh, therapeutic uses of music in Parkinson's disease have done just that. Uh, they've helped provide a beat and entrainment uh, for the patient to use when they want to do a particular voluntary movement, say getting on a moving escalator or you know, going on a hike. But there's another side of it too, which is in Parkinson's disease, there is a death of the neurons that make dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter involved in a number of things, including our sense of reward or motivation and movement. And it turns out that music is actually a pretty potent booster of endogenous dopamine. So it kind of has this two factor approach. It can sort of entrain the rhythms of these regions and get you moving. It can also make you feel pleasure and motivation, et cetera, that can maybe help uh, boost the levels of, of dopamine in a brain in which those levels are depleted. So I think that it can have you know, specific uh, mechanisms by which we can use music strategically with patients with Parkinson's disease. And there's lots of great work uh, that's going on in that area now. And does it look promising? Like, do you think that? This oh, will yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of testimonials. You can see videos of, uh, you know, I often in my talks show videos of patients before and after the musical intervention. And you, it's, it's remarkable, the difference. You know, there's this one patient, Larry Jennings, uh, you know, who uh, um, uh, uh, Anasia Gunlock was his physical therapist. She unfortunately passed away in a car accident shortly after she posted the video, but she posts this great video of, you know, at first he's with a walker. He can barely get across. It's very labored, the room. And then all of a sudden, you know, she has this insight to like put some, his favorite song on. She puts his favorite song on and by the end of the session, they're dancing together. No walker, he's leading. I mean, it's remarkable. So yeah, I think that it absolutely is promising. And I very much look forward to a time in which, you know, every neurologist who diagnoses a patient with Parkinson's disease writes a prescription for some kind of music therapy. How do you see it changing beyond that? Like, okay, this is Parkinson's. We spoke about dementia. We spoke about Alzheimer's. What other uh, neuro degenerative diseases can music actually work for as a therapeutic? Well, I mean, I don't think of them as neurodegenerative diseases or even diseases necessarily at all, but I think that music can help people with different neurodivergencies. Uh, so I think in the case of kids with um, developmental delays, 
Um, but also kids whose brains are just different, like those on the autism spectrum. I think there are different ways in which music can be helpful for them mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, helping them uh, live in a world that wasn't built for them, uh, that is built for more of a neurotypical brain. So I think that, yeah, I think there's there, there are ways in which music can be used uh, in, in those populations. Uh, I think, too, you know, in terms of... Um, uh, when you think about people who are recovering from strokes, uh, there's a very powerful music therapy tool called melodic intonation therapy, uh, which is taking advantage of the fact that sometimes when a person has a stroke in the left hemisphere and they lose their ability to speak, they can retain their ability to sing because that's a more right hemisphere function. Yeah. So instead of saying the words, I need to go to the bathroom, they can learn to sing it. I need to go to the bathroom and all of a sudden they can get the point across. Um, and melodic intonation therapy very slowly over time essentially rewires, repurposes, it seems, either the parts of the left hemisphere that have not been affected by uh, the stroke or parts of the right hemisphere to take on some of these language functions um, and using uh, a melody as a way of helping the person get their get their ideas across. So that's another tool. You know, I think that there, there, we're just going to find more and more ways in which music can be used strategically because it is such a core component, I think, uh, of the human experience. What about people with regular IQs uh, doing their day-to-day -day tasks? What are a few, like, you know, hacks or tools based on your neuroscience background and music could people apply and help them, like, just live better lives? Yeah, so, you know, there are different, um, different times in which we want to use different sort of global brain states. So there are times when we want to feel relaxed and chilled. Um, there are times when we want to have a slow kind of dreamy brain state that maybe puts us into uh, a kind of very creative idea generation phase. There are times we want to be focused. Uh, there are times we need to do a menial task and we just need to get through it. And we just need the, the sort of dopamine boost of music to sort of keep us on task. And there are times in which we want to have, you know, we have intense concentration where we sort of, you know, want it. So I think that, you know, the, the, the key is to use music strategically and not just to think that, oh, I can just put on any music and it's going to have the same effect. Um, think about the kind of mental state you want to be in. Is it daydreamy? Is it focused? Is it energized? Is it, you know, the state of flow? Um, and then you can think about what kind of music can put you in that state strategically and then use it in that way. Um, you know, I've often found that when there are times where, you know, like today was a good example. I was up most of the night with my daughter who was sick and I needed to do a bunch of editing and I'm so tired and I so did not want to do this. But I put on my favorite playlist and I got through it. You know, I got mm -hmm. through an hour and a half of menial editing work um, simply because I had that music to keep me going. So what what kind of music would you recommend for someone who's trying to concentrate? Because then you don't want music that has like words or something like that. Like that's just yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I think and I think that's individual. So for some people, listening to lyrics actually takes them takes their focus away. They can't help but listen to the lyrics and they can't focus on what it is that they need to do. For other people, it doesn't have that effect. So again, I think that there, you know, I think that is a little bit depends on the individual. Um, but I think you can be mindful of that. Like if you know that listening to lyrics is going to affect your concentration and usually like a kind of rule of thumb is, you know, when two tasks are very similar, it's hard to ignore one and do the other. When two tasks are dissimilar, it's easier to do them at the same time. So 
you know, if you're trying to edit something, some writing, uh, then maybe don't listen to lyrics of a song that you really love paying attention to. Maybe that's where instrumental work might be uh, more effective. Mm -hmm. um, if on the other hand, you're, you know, you're trying to find some kind of pattern, uh, you know, that that sort of maybe maps more closely onto instrumental music, then like maybe don't listen to the instrumental music while you're trying to do that. Um, so that's sort of a rule of thumb. But I think again, like I think I think as we get more of these wearables, as as more of these um, music startup, music tech startups become wise to the fact that we do have these music-specific uh, responses to music. We're going to learn more and more about how to personalize our music playlists for strategic purposes. We've been told that, you know, we are overstimulated or like there's just noise everywhere. And that kind of affects the way we make judgments, all of that. How does one mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, turn down, turn down the sound. I do think it's important to sort of sit in silence for a while. Um, I do think it's important to have times of your day where not you're not bombarded by sound um, or anything, frankly. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, we we have this kind of um, hangover effect that you know, if you spend a lot of time on social media, you spend a lot of time, you know, being engaged. Your 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 focus is, you know, constantly. You're constantly sort of I call it like snacking on these like little bits of attention grabbing things it's going to feel harder uh, to sit in silence, to sit with yourself, uh, but give yourself a few days and, uh, and suddenly, you know, things will, will even out again. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it's really important to find times in the day where you're not completely bombarded. And, and one of the, one of the downsides of working with music or listening to music while you study or do other boring tasks, not that studying is boring, but maybe there's some studying that is boring um, is that you don't, you know, you then, it, 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 it's a little bit like eating sugar. So the more sugar you eat, the more sugar you crave and the harder it is for you to not eat sugar. <laughs> so if you're constantly, um, you know, sweetifying your tasks with music, it's going to be harder for you to do those tasks without the music, without, you know, without for longer periods of time. So I do think there is a danger in that. So I, I tend to be strategic about my uses of music. I use it for the tasks that I need them when I really feel like I need this extra booster or else I'm not going to do it. Like today's a great example. I would not have done that editing if it were for the music. Hmm. Um, but I try not to make a habit of it all the time too. I do try to have periods of time in which I am concentrating, focused and not have any sounds in the background um, so that I'm not so dependent on that, you know, little dopamine boost. What about delayed reward in music? Like, you know, listen, uh, saying I'm going to do this task is going to be tough. I need to concentrate. And then directly after that, you have like a one minute dance session with music. You come back and you focus again. Does, that sounds there... great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great reward. I mean, I think we all need to take breaks. I think we need to build those rewards in. I think if music gives you that, you know, one minute boost, uh, you know, I see it in, in sort of the exercise classes as I do where, you know, you do a bunch of, you know, weightlifting or a bunch of like high intensity interval training, and then you get like a one minute dance break. Uh, and yeah, it's great. It's I think that's totally effective use. But does it help with memory retention as well? Because it's like you're walking towards a goal, like imagine I'm learning and I really need to solve this uh, problem. Once I'm done, I take a dance break and then I come back to it. So will that help me remember the way that I problem solved? I mean, I don't know about that specifically, but certainly um, taking breaks is an effective way of enhancing your learning. I think people overestimate how long they can spend, you know, studying something um, 
and and instead there's kind of diminishing returns. So oftentimes when I coach uh, music students, you know, at the conservatory in San Francisco where I, I have an, an appointment, sometimes they think, oh, I'm just gonna block off, you know, a six hour period uh, in the practice room and I'm just gonna practice, 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 right? That's all I need to do. But the truth is, is that you might be much more effective if you block off, you know, several shorter blocks over the course of the day because there's diminishing returns after a while. And I think that's true, you know, in, in terms of your studying too. Um, so I think taking breaks is really important. We do know that, you know, your brain gets full, there's diminishing returns. Um, you need to sleep on it or take a nap or take some other kind of break uh, for you to really consolidate that information. Um, and oftentimes what people find is that like, let's say they're learning even a musical, you know, a piece on a musical instrument or they're, you know, trying to solve some, some kind of task taking time away from that task. And a minute, I don't think is enough. You know, I think it may be 15, 20 minutes. You need to like really kind of reset your brain state. You can't just be continuing to ruminate about what you just did um, in, in the new situation. I, you know, I think that that can be a very powerful tool of like having the, the solution to the problem or, um, you know, even, even when it comes to, um, you know, the, the, the fingering in a particular piano piece, come to you uh, that you can you can now hear it uh, because you're not you're not driving your, your prefrontal cortex is not driving your thinking um, consciously the way it is when you're when you're focused um, so uh, yeah so I think I think that 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 is important to uh, you know to take breaks in that way um, but I think they need to probably be significant I mean I think the one minute break just to sort of give you a you know a short break is fine but I think that in terms of enhancing learning you probably want longer periods. What are the biggest challenges you face in the neuroscience field today? I would say reproducibility. I think that what we're seeing is that brains are so different uh, that, you know, you do a study on 30 individuals and you get one result. Um, I think it's often, you know, you shouldn't take for granted that a different set of 30 individuals are going to give you the same result. And especially when it comes to, you know, a lot of the studies that we've done, uh, have skewed towards a particular type of person, whether it's a socioeconomic status or race or gender. Um, and then, you know, generalizing to the rest of the world, I think has, been, has proven challenging. So I think, you know, reproducibility, ensuring that the result that you're finding um, is gonna remain true, not only for a larger cohort, but also over time, um, you know, culture changes us, changes our brains. So it's, it's who's to say that what worked 20 years ago is necessarily going to work 20 years from now. You spoke about culture. How does that change the brain? I know that's a very uh, tricky thing because culture is different in each area of the world. Does that affect the way your brain functions? Oh, sure. I mean, I don't think, again, no person is an island. And I think that culture affects how we build mental models, how we build our values, how we and even interpret things. Um, so yeah, I think culture has a, has a huge influence uh, on how our minds uh, emerge from our brains. And how so? I mean, can you give a few examples? Um, I guess I would say that if you think of culture as the lens through which you interpret the world, um, because it's sort of what, you know, how you've learned to track um, social uh, interactions, et cetera, then it's going to have a profound way uh, of, of focusing what you pay attention to, what emotional reactions you have to other people's behaviors, 
um, and how you decide what your own behavior should be. Um, and of course, all of those are traced back to ultimately your brain. Okay, thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.